So a series of events have in recent years put new and controversial challenges linked to irregular migration on the public agenda in Norway. The project that we're presenting here today, Provisional Welfare to Irregular Migrants, um, is a three-year project funded by Research Council of Norway, which aims to contribute to better uh, knowledge bases for discussing and dealing with these challenges. Researching irregular migration also provides an interesting point of departure for theorizing the welfare state and its borders. So some of the questions that we've been working on in the project and that we will discuss today are, how do welfare states relate to the people who live within the country's territorial limits but without the same privileges as the country's legal residents? What kinds of tensions do we find in national and international legislation regarding irregular migrants' welfare? How are migrants' lives shaped by institutional practice, policy development, and national and international law that regulate various welfare areas? And how is, welfare how is the welfare state experienced by migrants in a condition of illegality? While the research literature on irregular migrants in Norway has been growing for the last couple of years, the Pro-War Project is the first to combine a legal and ethnographic approach to the situation of this category of migrants in Norway. The research group consists of master students, PhDs, postdoc researchers and senior researchers in social anthropology and law from the University of Bergen. And unfortunately, we're only anthropologists here today. So this is one of our findings, that legal scholars in Norway are less mobile than <laughs> anthropologists. Um, <clears throat> anyway, what, uh, we've had also a number of international partners, uh, and one of them are uh, Bridget Anderson here as Compass. Now, through integrating and investigating an investigation of existing law and regulations with ethnographic examinations of how rules shape practice within different welfare institutions and how migrants experience their access to welfare services, the project aims to produce multi-perspectival insights into the lives of irregular migrants. From an anthropological or social legal perspective, of course, law and legal processes must be located in the wider social contexts. Rules that are provided through law and through various regulations are interpreted and put into effect in concrete social situations. Institutional practices come into being in concrete meetings between various representatives of the welfare state and migrants and are formed both by laws and regulations and by the various actors' knowledges uh, and values, as well as by broader representations of irregular migrants uh, that are circulating in media and in public debates than, for instance, about servingness. Laws and institutional practices are crucial to regular migrants' actual experience and everyday life in the borderlands of the welfare state. So a focus on migrants' experiences in everyday life can, in turn, produce a better understanding of the effects of the legislation and institutional practices related to migration and welfare. Legal regulations are not necessarily the only or the most important determinant of irregular migrants' access to welfare. As such, access depends on numerous other social and cultural factors. It is these complex relationships and social dynamics which are the main concerns of the Proverb Project. Now, being in an irregular situation or living under what Chavez calls a condition of illegality affects one's total situation, including working life, housing, education, health, and family life. In the Prover Project, we have focused on health and education in particular. 
These are interesting areas to investigate in a Nordic welfare state context because they are to an even larger extent than, for instance, the labour market and the housing market regulated through the state and the public sector. Such a focus thereby allows us to problematize the complex relationship between the universality of the welfare state and migration control. A number of dilemmas appear when we look at irregular migrants' access to health and education between the state's sovereign right to control its territorial borders and human rights, between border control and universal welfare ambitions, and between the need to govern and humanitarian and ethical principles. And also between, as we discussed earlier today, between the state's uh, punitive and its caring um, aspects. State control of territorial borders is here set against ideals of inclusion of vulnerable groups whose protection the welfare state is meant to ensure, in this case, sick people and children. Now, irregular migrants' interaction with the state in which they're living are frequently characterized as being that of inside and outside simultaneously, on the margin, uh, or that they are living in a space of no way out or no way in, as uh, Sigona here has uh, called it. Irregular migrants uh, are said to be living off borrowed time and easily exploitable due to lack of protection. Uh, and this can also be said uh, to be seen to be emblematic of the precarious worker, as for instance uh, Bridget Anderson has argued. Here, their insecure and unstable work situation is understood not only to derive from neoliberal labor market conditions, but also from how these conditions intersect with immigration control. Goldring, Bernstein, and Bernard also talk about precarious migratory status to capture the multiple and variable forms of less than full status and is defined by the absence of key rights or entitlements usually associated with a full or nearly full status of citizenship and permanent residence. To them, precarious status, and I quote, like citizenship, is multidimensional and constructed by specific state policies, regulations, practices of policy implementation, activism, and discourses. In this paper, we suggest the concept of precarious inclusion as a way of analytically approaching the provisional welfare to irregular migrants in Norway. Our understanding of precarious inclusion builds upon previous efforts to go beyond this dichotomous approaches to legal status uh, and by attempts to theorize the limited and partial welfare access to irregular migrants as a consequence of particular moral economies characteristic of modern welfare states. So moral economies in the sense of, of Didier Fassin, of the production and distribution of values and norms. Now we will start by giving a short overview of irregular migration in the context of the Norwegian welfare state. Next, we will engage some of the theoretical debates on irregular migration and argue for a move from inclusive exclusion in the Agambian sense uh, to um, the concept of precarious inclusion. In the following section, we ground this discussion ethnographically through a multi-level analysis of access to healthcare at a legal, institutional, and experiential level. In conclusion, we discussed a particular moral economy that underpins the precarious inclusion of irregular migrants in the Norwegian welfare state. So who are the irregulars that we're speaking about? 
Norwegian authorities operate with a guesstimate, that it's called, from Statistics Norway, setting the numbers of persons without legal stay, as they are called in official statistics, and this is uh, figures from 2006, uh, between 10,000 and 32,000. And we're expecting new figures from St uh, Central Statistics Bureau very soon. Uh, while irregular migration in Southern Europe is usually thought of or constructed as a form of labor migration, a majority of those without legal stay in Norway have, according to these guesstimates, been through the asylum process. The term guesstimate, used by Zhang, making the statistics, points, of course, to the methodological difficulties of producing reliable statistics in this area. In the politicized context of European migration debates, figures of Ill illegal migrants easily become pros and cons in various political projects. In Norway, as elsewhere in Europe, there has been a tendency to reference the highest estimate as the actual number, a practice that the Directorate of Immigration has tried to rectify through a so-called myth buster. Statistics are also, as we know from Foucault and others, crucial to modern forms of government. In the case of irregular migrants, statistics serve not only to get knowledge about the population, but also to identify those who are not considered to be a legitimate part of the territory's population and must therefore be excluded from rights that in the law are accorded to everyone, which is the concept used in most Norwegian legislation. Norwegian authorities and Statistics Norway generally use the term without legal stay about migrants who for various reasons lack state authorizations to reside in the country. Both in the academic literature and in public debate we find numerous other terms and these are contested and relate to varieties of struggles to define what the problem is. In the proverb project we have chosen we chose initially to conceptualize our object of study as irregular migration, because it is a term that can cover not only legal status, but also political, social, and economic mechanisms. It also has the advantage of being less politically loaded in the Norwegian context. Uh, in order to stress the importance of paying attention to the discursive juridical, political, social, and economic mechanisms that produce migrants as illegal, we also sometimes use the term irregularized or illegalized. When we look at migration law in its social legal context, the dichotomy legal-illegal is less stark than it may seem at first. For one, definitions of legal stay may differ within different legal domains. For instance, while migration law defines rules for stay and access, um, while migration law defines rules for stay and access to Norway, health law defines legal and illegal stay on slightly different terms, which may open for certain differences in interpretation of what being illegal means. Furthermore, different factors can contribute to someone moving from the status legal to illegal or illegal to legal, and to different deg degrees of deportability. Most asylum seekers who enter Norway bypass border regulations to get into the country and apply for asylum. During the asylum process, the legal status can shift several times. Many migrants refuse to inhabit the position of illegal and speak about themselves rather as asylum seekers with a negative. Although in Norway there are fewer possibilities for gradually qualifying for legal stay through, for instance, residence and work than in countries such as France and Italy and perhaps also the UK now, Attachment to the country and specific locality is given some weight, especially in cases concerning children, as recent limited amnesty for long-staying asylum children shows.
Now, unlike countries such as Sweden, Italy, and France, Norway has had no official regularization programs for irregular migrants, which may increase the population of migrants who have stayed irregularly in the country over time. Like in other European countries, migration control has expanded and become more intensive through the use of return, detention and deterrence, and inten intensification of what De Genova and Poets calls the deportation regime. The Norwegian government's explicit policy objective is to encourage as many irregular migrants as possible to leave voluntarily. This is done through introducing asylum seekers through the program of so-called voluntary return organized by the IOM on behalf of Norwegian authorities. As part of this objective to encourage so-called voluntary return, the Norwegian government continues to implement agreements with relevant countries, making it legal to return irregular migrants with force. Such agreements that legalize forced return effectively increase deportability. The target number for deportation increased from 3,700 in 2010 um, to uh, 4,600 in 2011. Uh, in 2013, 5,934 were deported, a majority within Schengen and in accordance with the Dublin Convention. And the goal for 2014 is now to deport 7,100. <coughs> A specialized detention facility has also been established to facilitate deportation. Such practices are crucial to the production of irregularized or illegalized migrants and create around them, as we know, a field of illegal activity related to the migration process, such as human smuggling and document falsification. Norwegian researchers have pointed out how two previously separated domains of control, immigration control and crime control, affect each other. Unauthorized stay is not in itself punishable in Norway, but such unauthorized stay is often combined with a breach of one of the migration control regulations that are punishable. The Attorney General and certain politicians have argued that criminal punishment ought to be used more frequently in cases of unauthorized stay. A report from an NGO on detention of asylum seekers criticized the government for punishing irregular entry with fines in prison. Paradoxically, however, criminalization and punishment does not necessarily mean less welfare rights, but sometimes the contrary. The status as a criminal and a prisoner in some respects gives more protection than the status as a legal migrant. For instance, an irregular migrant and princess will, in prison, will, in theory, have the same access to health care as all other inmates. In The Origins of Totalitarianism, Hannah Arendt argues that whether someone's legal position would be improved by committing a crime is the best criterion by which to decide if someone has been forced outside the law. Arendt's prison criterion provides a thought-provoking analogy to the situation of irregular migrants. However, in our opinion, irregular migrants' access to welfare should be understood not so much in terms of a radical distinction between those who have been forced outside the law and those who are situated inside the law, as in terms of what we call a precarious inclusion in the modern welfare nation-state. Now, the Nordic welfare societies are characterized by a comprehensive welfare state model, where the residents' welfare to a large extent is attended to through public arrangements that are financed through the tax system. The right to welfare is based on residence and legal status rather than employment, income, or previous contribution to the welfare system. Universal rights to all residents have been a fundamental principle for the modern Norwegian welfare state, and ambitions of equality and inclusion are still high. 
there is a virtually unison trust in the welfare state. And the welfare system has played a considerable role in including also migrants and refugees. Hence, the integration of immigrants into the welfare societies has been linked to an ideal um, of including all residents. However, the Nordic welfare states and their institutions also construct nationhood and deservingness in ways that have exclusionary effects and that oppose the ethnic majority to various migrant groups. One might have expected that a generous and inclusive welfare state would give liberal access to welfare services to irregular migrants. But it seems that the Nordic welfare nationalism creates more reluctance to include irregular migrants than in many countries with a less ambitious and encompassing welfare state. Now, whilst the private sector is crucial to welfare provision in many societies in the form of, for instance, family, kin, NGOs, or the marketplace, the state regulates substantial part of the residents' welfare and social life in the Nordic countries. As a consequence, relations between individuals, organizations, and the state are fundamental. Sharon Kosravi has argued on this basis that in strong welfare states, the close relations between individuals, organizations and the state make it harder to get along for those who are excluded from public arrangements. Irregular migration thus points towards inequality producing as aspects of the Nordic welfare state model. However, as stated earlier, a multi-perspectival approach that pays attention to legal regulations, institutional practices, and everyday life show quite a complex picture of socially embedded processes of precarious inclusion. Yes, um, then I will start with some theoretical and analytical precursor on from inclusive exclusion to precarious inclusion. Both in legal studies and in political philosophy, there have been a number of efforts to grasp the particular legal situation of irregular migrants. Moreover, criticism of how human rights fail to protect migrants is rife in works that draw on Agamben, Arendt, and the like. The situation of irregular migrants is often conceptualized as a total lack of rights, uh, an inclusive exclusion, and through the Agamben term homo Sasser. Although engagement with this literature has been crucial for our thinking about the function of law and sovereignty, we have found a need for developing an empirically grounded legal and ethnographic approach that show more of the complex complexity of exclusion and inclusion involved in irregular migration today. A binary distinction between the citizen and the stateless, stateless like the one we find in Agamben and Arendt, fails to capture the certain more graduated dimension of citizenship and the binary distinction between exclusion and inclusion, and leaves little room for migrant agency. Aiva Ong has argued that neoliberal globalization entails new combinations between aspects of citizenship and forms of mobility, which, which does not reflect a simple distinction between the citizen and the non-citizen, but also a graduated citizenship within and across the nation state. It is not formal citizenship, but legal residency that most importantly determines access to welfare rights in Norway. However, the gradation of right does not end with illegality. Analysis resting on a dichotomy of inside or outside the law risk, risks conferring too much coherence into illegality and thus overlooking how illegal lies are also supported and maintained through different and contradictory legal regulations, measures and bureaucratic practices. Both in legal terms and when it comes to participation in various social arenas, 
we can identify exclusionary and inclusionary laws, regulations, institutional and informal practices. On this basis, we suggest conceptualizing migrant illegalities in terms of precarious inclusion rather than inclusive exclusion. By using precarious inclusion, we want to highlight the insecurity and unpredictability inscribed in welfare rights and protection accorded to irregular migrants. Rather than a total absence of rights, what we have found in Norway is that irregular migrants are accorded rights that are limited, open for interpretations, partial, and that are structured to maintain a sense of temporariness. Irregular migrants' precarious inclusion through welfare is also produced by how access and right to welfare intersect with immigration control. Consequently, there are a number of structural and experience bar barriers towards accessing healthcare services. Precarious in inclusion does not only affect irregular migrants, but control of territorial borders is one of the major generative mechanisms of such precarious inclusion in the contemporary world. world. Uh, the legal terrain of welfare rates, rights to irregular migrants is complex and a mapping of this terrain in it is in itself an important contribution to understanding irregular migrants' situation in contemporary Norway. Moreover, it is vital, vital to assess more critically whether Norwegian regulations are compatibly, co compatible with international human rights law and what kind of protection of rights international European human rights law offer. We have, however, attempted to avoid the naive legal empiricism that characterizes some of the mappings of law related to irregular migrants, i.e. taking the law at face value. Hence, the focus has been directed at locating law and legal processes in a wider social context. It rationalizes and affects reading legal texts through ethnographic data of everyday migrant illegality and vice versa. Conversely, we have also tried to avoid a naive anthropological empiricism of taking migrant accounts as facts. In our effort to develop a critical phen phenomenology of illegality, Sarah Willen has argued for the need to move beyond descriptions of irregular migrants' juridical and social-political situation to an ethnographically grounded examination of migrants' embodied experience of being illegal. In the ProVart project, we have, in line with this grounded approach, been concerned with the experiential consequences of the condition of illegality, how it affects experiences of space, time, person, and community. Reading the ethnography through a more Foucauldian lens has directed us towards paying attention to the various processes of subjectiv subjectivation that take place in the relationship between discourse, government practices, and subject making. Also of the non-citizen. Whilst examining the subjectification effects of governmental policies, regulations, and institutional practices on irregular migrant self-consciousness and being in the world, we have taken seriously how precarious so social legal inclusion shape the experiences of irregular migrants. Um, we have also taken equally seriously the ways irregular migrants act and respond to juridical and social political situations that do not fully determine their subjectivity. So now I'm moving more on to the uh, or, uh, ethnographic uh, data, uh, to a multi-perspective approach to irregular migrants' access to healthcare. In a comparative European study of irregular migrants' access to healthcare, Norway is categorized on the basis of a judicial examination by Servig, 
as a partial access country, while southern European countries such as France, Portugal, and at the time Spain, gave full access, and some eastern and middle European countries no access at all. While regulation was fragmented in regards to healthcare when we started the Prover project, a new regulation from December 2011 explicitly deals with the right of those without legal stay to healthcare services. The regulation specifies that irregular migrants are, in addition to emergency healthcare, entitled to a health services which are absolutely necessary and cannot be postponed without the risk of immediate death, permanent and seriously reduced functionality, serious harm or exceptional pain. B. Necessary healthcare before and after giving birth. C. Induced abortion under the Abortion Act. And D. Healthcare regarding transmissible diseases. And finally, E. Healthcare that cannot wait until deprivation of liberty is lifted. Children are entitled to necessary healthcare unless the interests of the child dictate that assistance should not be provided. However, the irregular migrant should themselves carry the full financial burden the exception being children and treatment for transmissible diseases. As we can see in this law text, a sense of tempor temporariness is very much inscribed through phrases such as, such as emergency care and health care that cannot wait. According to this regulation, medical professionals are supposed to consider a possible departure before instigating treatment. As this consultation paper states, and I quote, the health service should attempt to obtain information from the patient when he or she must leave the country. If there is reliable information about the departure date, this will be a relevant factor in considering whether the person has the right to health care. Or examination of institutional practices show how this new regulation draw doctors and medical personnel into migration control in a way they have not previously been. In this case, migratory control is not only about detecting and excluding migrants at the hospital's doorstep, but a person's legal status also become part of the medical assessment the doctor needs to do. If the patient is to be deported soon, it, might not, it may not be medically justifiable to perform surgery, for instance. Moreover, for children who are legally given access to necessary health care, there have been examples of the temporal frame of return limit, limiting their actual access. The issue of temporariness is evoked in the healthcare regulation through the phrase, unless the interest of the child dictate that assistance should not be provided. In practice, it has been interpreted to mean that extensive medical care is not in the best interest of the child when follow-up in Norway is not guaranteed. These developments can be analyzed in light of Etienne Balibar's claim that borders are no longer, if they ever were, only at the external territorial borders of nation states or regions, but spread out throughout the territory and materializing wherever mobility happens and, in, and is controlled. Using an ethnographic approach, approach to such spread out state border practices also reveal friction between different agendas between and within different state institutions and levels that may pull in different directions concerning the inclusion and exclusion of irregular migrants. Translating the healthcare regulation into practice give, give rise to a number of practical and ethical dilemmas as it comes into contradiction with professional codes of ethics, expertise knowledge and established bureaucratic routines. 
The Ministry of Health, for instance, in Norway, for instance, considers two to three weeks a reasonable time frame for the irregular migrant to be able to leave the country, suggesting that treatment should not be instigated if it could be postponed be beyond these weeks. With the knowledge that many irregular migrants will not leave after two to three weeks regardless, this may conflict with expert knowledge on what is medica medically the best option. Healthcare workers at various levels and in various fields who were asked during um, interviews what the term healthcare that cannot wait would mean in their field all dismissed the term. They did, however, state they did, however, state either that it was nonsense, a term invented by bureaucrats and lawyers with no relation to the practice of medicine, or that it was already covered by how they understood emergency care, and as such did not make any difference to their current practice. Emergency care, they pointed out, is already a very broad term. If you ask 10 different doctors, you'll get 10 different answers, as one emergency doctor explained. What constitutes an emergency would, according to the doctor, also change based on the patient's social status, insight into their illness, access to a general practitioner, access to caregivers who can look after you while you are sick, access to a good home, or circumstances at home that are constructive. This definition of emergency, which would uh, which takes social inequalities into account, gives a more flexible temporal understanding of what emergency care is and could thus provide doctors with professional grounds to extend emergency services to irregular migrants for condition otherwise considered non-urgent. However, care to irregular migrants is still mainly framed and organized as an exception with a focus on alleviating the here and now rather than providing any continuity of care. Doctors did not see the time frame of two to three weeks suggested by the ministry as a workable guideline, as information regarding a possible departure and the possibility of treatment in their destination country would not be available for the doctors making the decision. It was rather seen as putting the doctor in an impossible situation. Due to doctor-patient confidentiality, doctors cannot contact the police or the directorate of immigration or anyone else without the patient's consent. Their only real source of information is thus the patients, who most likely have no answer to this themselves. In response to these paradoxes, healthcare workers would develop various strategies. Examples of such strategies that reinforce exclusion are avoidance, non-action, and keeping to a narrow biomedical framework, ignoring circumstance. Two central strategies that contribute to what we have called precarious inclusion could be described as functional ignorance and structural compensation, terms also used by the Nowhereland project. Functional ignorance in this case is a form of don't ask, don't tell approach where healthcare workers would ask but not prioritize investigating legal status in case there were people failed to provide a valid ID or a pers personal identification number. Give low priority to follow up unpaid bills or, or under-communicate uncertainty reg regarding status when referring patients to specialists. They would also overlook that two different persons with different medical conditions uh, a register under the same ID and patient journal. 
Structural compensation we find when medical care for irregular migrants is left in the hands of publicly funded NGOs. Though irregular migrants are only given a minimum of access to public health care in Norway, it is not illegal for healthcare institutions, healthcare workers or NGOs to provide more extended services. In Oslo, the Red Cross and the Church Outreach Mission run a voluntary clinic for undocumented migrants. Though the clinic itself only receives a small amount of public funding to specific projects, the two organizations behind the clinic receive significant funding through various state and local mechanisms. Another example of structural compensation from, Norwegian, from the Norwegian context is particular municipal health care services established to serve certain categories of irregular migrants that are considered more deserving or vulnerable. For instance, in both Oslo and Bergen, women in prostitution, who in the Norwegian discourse are generally framed as victims and most likely trafficked, are given access to necessary primary care regardless of legal status. The Pro Center, a service for women and men who sell sex run by the city of Oslo, and financed jointly by the central government and the city would also cover uh, these women's abortion expenses. The hospital, which the women were referred to, would send the bill directly to the pro-center. Whilst this strategy of functional ignorance and structural compensation offer important mechanism for including irregular migrants in healthcare services, <coughs> they only provide partial and improvisational remedies and as, and as such reinforce the precarious inclusion found in law in institutional practice. So what are the various ways, what are the various ways irregular migrants respond to these forms of precarious inclusions? What consequences do the way health rights for irregular migrants are regulated, so temporariness, limited demands for payment, uncleared content vice, and the institutional practices, arbitrary and predictable, that they encounter, have for how they experience access to healthcare? Through fieldwork and interviews with irregular migrants, looking specifically at the issue of healthcare, we found that access to healthcare becomes precarious in the sense that it becomes tied up to individual and group practices. So this resembles a kind of tactique a la Desarteau, insofar as these practices are not producing new spaces of opportunity, but becomes means through which they can use or manipulate the spaces or interceding with the prevailing regulatory system. Their access to healthcare becomes arbitrary, individually, on a case-to-case -case ba basis, and tied up with ideas of underservingness. Primary healthcare in Norway is based on a list system with regular general practitioners. To gain access to secondary care, you need to be referred to your GP. While some irregular migrants are able to receive continuous care through the GP they were assigned to as an asylum seeker, and or otherwise have come in, into contact with, many have to rely on using emergency primary healthcare services, private clinics, or the voluntary run health clinic for und undocumented migrants in Oslo. So in the following, we look at how migrants experience barriers to healthcare access when they do not have access to a GP through the asylum system. Three types of barriers are crucial. One, economic, or rather concern of potential charges for consultations and treatment. Although there are generally few upfront payment, payments in the Norwegian healthcare system, one is faced with a bill at the end of the consultation, and for a regular consultation in Norway that's about £20. 
one is not necessarily obliged to, to pay that at the spot, and you can take the bill to pay later when leaving. Nonetheless, we encountered irregular migrants who would make sure that they did have money to cover the bill before visiting healthcare. The importance that some put in paying their bills can also be understood as part of an effort to keeping on the right side of the law in an otherwise illegal situation. It can also be tied up to pride or fear of police. To rejection. A feeling of being rejected by the healthcare personnel, including gatekeepers such as the receptionist. Some of the irregular migrants had experienced what they perceived as being unwelcomed at their at the emergency care units and expressed this by referring to how the receptionist had looked at them or the row of questions that they had been asked. And so they, they actually decided not to, to return to the emergency care due to those incidences. And three, mistrust. Others who were having difficulty sleeping and suffered from repeated nightmares talked about not visiting a, a, a psychiatrist or a GP because they feared that their needs would not be met and that they would instead be mistrusted, such as the doctor would be leaving that they only made up a story to somehow strengthen around their asylum cases. So experiences of barriers that must be overcome in order to assess welfare may well also be something that Norwegian legal residents experience at times. Yet the irregular situation tends to intensify such experiences and are intensified by other aspects of their everyday life, such as feeling of rejection, of their asylum application, idleness, being frequently without a job or expectation, work in the informal labour market with low payment and high risk, mistrust, being so sometimes viewed as bogus asylum seekers or potential welfare chiefs, and of being seen as underserving. The governmental policies, regulations and institutional practices shape how irregular migrants then relate to their real bodies. Some avoided the public health care partly to avoid risking being humiliated or risking being treated, feeling as treated as underserving. Instead, they relented to self-care, such as taking vitamins or traditional medication, and relied on knowledge that they had derived from their parents. Others drew on their social and ethnic network, such as visiting a GP with a foreign-sounding name, believing that these doctors would be more likely to assist them, um, disregarding their regular status or borrowing the ID card of someone else with a residence permit. <clears throat> Yet others decided to postpone altogether the medical examination until they had become regularised, even if they were suffering from potential illness symptoms. Putting their health on hold suggests how temporality comes to shape their being in the world. So the temporality that we talked about earlier in relationship to the GP but whereas the doctors have to, the GP have to consider the temporality of their, of their patients because according to the government they should leave Norway as soon as possible and so making it in some cases a health risk to start treatment, the irregular migrant's temporary postponement of starting treatment is rather shaped by his or her endeavour to ultimately be able to stay in Norway. And so in both cases ill health becomes tied up to the temporality of migration control. And actually we would like to think some more about this uh, issue about temporality because we, we believe that there are different forms of temporality tied up to health, migration control and irregularity. But these various ways of conduct by irregular migrants when they were feeling ill draw light then on how access to healthcare for this group is characterised by the uncertainty and arbitrariness that characterise precarious inclusion. So how does this tie into the moral economy of the Norwegian welfare state, as Christina was talking about in the beginning? 
In the Nordic welfare states, the ideal of attending to and caring for groups that are defined as weak or vulnerable, vulnerable is strong, and it is generally considered crucial to the legitimacy of the welfare state and the identity of inhabitants as citizens of an inclusive society. There is a norm that people should not live under unworthy condition and discoveries of such conditions regularly cause outrage in the media and calls for political action. Even if this ideal is primarily seen to concern Norwegians, we found a similar imperative of attending to and caring for vulnerable people on a global scale through development and humanitarian aid. Didier Fassin and Mariam Tiktin have shown how migration policies in contemporary Europe weaves together migration control with a humanitarian exceptionalism where feelings and practices related to care and compassion become central for governing mobility. In different European countries, we find provisions, different provisions that accord particular categories of migrations, the right to temporary protection, stay on medical reasons, protection of trafficking victims, etc. Also in the Norwegian context, the moral obligation to treat people humanly and with compassion is activated, in particular cases where stay is granted on so-called humanitarian grounds. Sometimes this moves beyond the case-by-case -case assessment of individual deservingness and involves modification of existing laws or extra extraordinary provisions such as a law called Lexa Melie, which was a very much uh, mediated case that led to an actual change in migration law and also uh, to the recent amnesty for some of the so-called asylum children. In the wake of this combination of a strict migration control and humanitarian exceptionalism, the question of how to distinguish more or less worthy or deserving subjects from the less worthy or deserving ones becomes crucial. Tiktin and Fassin have argued that the biological body gained a particular salience for understandings of deservingness and the right to stay in France in the 1990s. While the biological body, in the form of the pregnant woman, the sick child, the tortured refugee, also plays a, an important role in arguing for irregular migrants the right to stay in the Norwegian context, two further discourses seem to be more crucial. The idea of the best interest of the child and the idea about belonging, and which in Norway uh, passes through attachment to the local community. These discourses have been central to recent discussions about the so-called asylum children. The moral obligation to treat people with, with compassion and the salience of the biological body is also visible in discussions surrounding irregular migrants' access to, to welfare. Despite several political attempts to tighten policies, irregular migrants still have partial access to health care and limited rights to social assistance while still in Norway. However, basis seems to be that irregular migrants are allowed to persist, but not flourish. One of the primary critiques of humanitarian engagement is, is its short-term focus on the elevation of immediate suffering, providing only temporary measures. And so it's in light of this that we suggest to conceptualize migrant access to welfare in terms of precarious inclusion. And the precariousness of irregular migrants' inclusion is also produced by humanitarian exceptionalism that allocates care based on effect and value, rather than universal rights in the welfare state. Services that are allocated to people primarily seen as victims or as good illegals easily becomes vulnerable to moral panics and frequent changes. 
This can, for instance, be seen in the constant changing regulations regarding rejected asylum seekers' right to state accommodation in Norway in the past decade. Furthermore, there, were, there was recently an amendment to the right to economic emergency aid following the media coverage that assistance was given to an irregular migrant convicted of attempted <coughs> rape. So precarious lives are, as Fassin has pointed out, lives that are not guaranteed but bestowed in answer to prayer. While arguments for including irregular migrants into welfare provisions have mainly been articulated within a moral economy of care and compassion, irregular migrants have themselves mobilised partly through different items, through making themselves visible in public spaces, space in the form of tent camps in the city centre, pilgrim marches, theatre plays, art projects, and social media, they have, protested, they have protested their situation and the criminalisation of irregularity. This form of making visible goes beyond the humanitarian discourse to help and establish the migrants as potentially rights-bearing political subjects within the Norwegian polity who claim the right to a voice. However, also this mobilisation has tended to reproduce some aspects of the discourse of deservingness by presenting themselves, for instance, as ideal workers and community members, and as already being citizens in a substantial sense of participating in society, while, while, while lacking the legal authorization to do so. So let us conclude. So in this paper, we have suggested to conceptualise provisional welfare to regular migrants in Norway as precarious inclusion. By using precarious inclusion, we want to highlight the insecurity and unpredictability inscribed in the welfare rights and protection accorded to irregular migrants. Rather than the total absence of rights, what we have found in Norway is that irregular migrants are accorded rights that are limited and partial and that are structured to maintain a sense of temporariness. Precarious inclusion is, as we have demonstrated, produced simultaneously at the legal, institutional and experiential level. And the interaction between these levels in concrete social in situations where laws are interpreted and put into practice in the concrete meetings between welfare workers and migrants, in particular institutional settings. The ethnographic analysis has shown that precarious inclusion is based on a particular temporality, combining ideas of emergency and help that cannot wait, as an acknowledgement of the here and no presence of irregular migrants, with a temporal frame of migration control, and thus with return as the future point of absolute exclusion. Precarious inclusion of irregular migrants into health provisions is thus constituted within a particular temporality of here and no presence, emergency, and future exclusion through deportation. And this precarious inclusion, we, are, we have argued, is underpinned by a particular moral economy that combines a concern with protecting both territorial and welfare state borders with a humanitarian exceptionalism that demands a limited inclusion in welfare provisions of those who suffer.